0: All right, you guys can turn to James chapter 5, James 5. We're going to continue our study in James of the undivided life this morning. While you're turning there to James 5, just going to let you know it is not too late if you have not yet signed up for a small group or a home church. Here at Grace, uh, you can still do that. Uh, They have not started yet. We would love to have you um, come participate in a small group community here. Uh, You can go to our website and sign up at any time. If you just go to our website and click connect, it will give you all the options of small groups and home churches and mentoring groups and all kinds of stuff like that. You can just choose whatever one you'd like. If you're having a hard time making up your mind, you can call or email us and we'll help you find the best small group for you. Well, this week I did a little bit of research And discovered that some of the things that I have always assumed to be true are not. How many of you were told, warned really as a child, that if you swallow your bubble gum, it'll take seven years to digest? (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, that little warning worked well on me. never wanted to chew bubble gum because I was afraid of it. Because what if, you know, I'm I'm running down the street as a little kid and I stumble and I swallow that gum. It will go and sit in my stomach for almost a decade. And if I do that over and over again, then my stomach is going to fill up with gum. And I I literally pictured my stomach filling up with gum so that there was no more room for food in it and I would starve and die. (laughs) I didn't chew bubble gum because of what turned out to be a false assumption. Bubble gum is indigestible, and so like all indigestible things, it just goes right through you. 24 hours, and it's gone. I was afraid of bubble gum because of a false assumption. Another false assumption, uh, I always assumed growing up that if you eat and then go swimming, you will get a cramp and drown. So... <laughs> because of that assumption, I really did not like having picnics at pools because that's just cruel to a kid. You eat and then you have to sit on your towel for an hour while everybody else plays in the water. That's awful. Um, But that was actually a false assumption. Recent studies out published in the New York Times, there is no correlation between eating and jumping in the pool and an increased risk in cramping or drowning. No correlation at all. No risk if you eat and jump in the water. Third, and this one uh, is really important, this one really surprised me, most surprising of all, um, for us parents. How many of us parents assume that if we give our children candy, it will make them hyperactive? Right? Give kids sugar and it will make them hyperactive. Double-blind studies have proven definitively there is no link between sugar and hyperactivity. Kids who have a sugary diet are no more hyperactive than kids who have a sugar-free diet. So you ask, Blake, why are your kids crazy when you give them candy? It could be that because as I'm handing them that candy, I say to their mother, well, get ready, sweetie, because it's about to get crazy in here. So what kid, when handed candy by his dad and told that it's about to get crazy, isn't going to get crazy? I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy (laughs) based on a false assumption. There are so many things that we assume to be true That don't hold up to evidence. So many beliefs that are based on false assumptions. This morning, we're gonna look at one of the biggest of them all, one of the most significant false assumptions that the human race has bought into the false assumption that it's better to be rich than it is to be poor. That's pretty much an unquestioned assumption here in America. It's uncontested that life is better if you have money than if you don't. It is better to have lots of money than little money. We all assume that to be true. That's why you go to college, to get a good job that pays more money. That's why you work hard at your job, to get a raise or get a promotion, so you have more money. That's why you take business risks and investment risks, so that you can earn more money, So much of our human behavior is dedicated to accumulating more and more wealth because we assume that life is better if you have lots of wealth than if you have no wealth. But what if that wasn't true? What if that's a false assumption? What if life is actually better for those with less money than for those with more money? What if life is not better for the rich than for the poor? This morning, James has some really challenging things to say to us. He has some really difficult passages for us, especially for us living in an affluent society. James is going to challenge all of our long-held assumptions about wealth. It's going to be hard for us. Let's start with the hardest passage of all. Look at chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Chapter five, starting in verse one. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Wow, James is not to step on toes, is he? And depending on what your bank account is, you may be feeling a little uncomfortable at the moment. Did James just condemn all rich people to hell? Did James just say that to be rich is inherently immoral? Well, actually, no. To understand this passage and to understand everything that James is going to say about wealth and about being rich versus being poor, you have to step out of our world for a moment. You have to step out of the 21st century for a moment and go back into James' day, into his age. Because economics in the ancient world were drastically different than economics today. Let me fill you in on the difference. Um, Here is what economics looks like today. We live in a world with three economic classes, the poor, the middle class, and the rich. This is the world that James lived in. There was no middle class, virtually non-existent in the ancient world. There was just the poor and the rich, and the poor were the majority by far. Vast majority of people were poor, few were rich, and in between was an uncrossable chasm. There was no movement between these classes. The rich were rich, the poor was poor, and that was that in James' day. Now, let's start with the group on the left, the poor. What do we know about them? Well, the poor in the ancient world, um, there were a variety of, of poor people number of reasons that people were poor. The best off among the poor were small landowners. They farmed their land. They tried to stay alive by raising crops. Next best is tenant farmers. They farmed other people's lands. Next best is day laborers. They were hired for one day's work and that got them one day's food. Next best, slaves. Finally, beggars. So a range of poor people in the ancient world, but what they all shared in common, what united all poor people together is that they literally Lived hand to mouth. They lived hand to mouth. They had no savings. They didn't take vacation. They worked every day because their existence was tenuous at best. They were a matter of weeks or even days from starvation. So they had to work constantly to try to eke out an existence in the ancient world. That's the vast majority of people, the poor. Now, what about the rich? very small minority in the population of the ancient world. Uh, there were people who were rich because they were related to high priests. There were people who were rich because they ruled countries or were, or were related to the people who ruled. There was a rich aristocracy who owned all the land and there were rich businessmen and merchants who controlled commerce. So a variety of, of rich people in the ancient world, but what united all of them, what they shared in common, is almost all of them got rich through immorality. Almost all rich people in the ancient world got rich through unrighteous means. That's actually what James condemns in the passage we read. Look back at chapter 5. Let's pick it up where we left off, verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. A couple of the ways that people got rich in the ancient world. One was to withhold pay to people who worked for you. You just cheat them. You cheat or you you steal what they they deserve, you could get rich that way. Uh, Or verse six, um, you could literally have people killed, either thrown in prison or enslaved or killed, and that way amass more and more wealth for yourself. Uh, Another way, turn back to chapter two, chapter two, verse six. James says to the church he's speaking to, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? What James is looking at is that one of the other ways to get rich in the ancient world was you made high interest loans to people who were desperate. So loans with exorbitant interest and then as soon as they fall short, you either throw them in prison or you make a slave of them. That was a way you take advantage of those who are desperate to amass more and more money. James treats all rich people as if they were immoral because in the ancient world, they pretty much all were. Pretty much everyone who was rich in the ancient world got that way through unrighteous means. And what we need to understand about the ancient world, it's very different than ours. In our world, we live in an economy that can grow, can actually grow very fast. And so you can get rich and I can get rich at the same time because our economy can grow, theirs could not. They lived in a fixed economy. So if you will, their whole economy was a pie that could not grow. And so if I want a bigger slice of the pie, what do I have to do? I have to take more from you. And that's how people got rich. They came up with ingenious ways to take more and more people's pieces of the pie. And so James treats all unrighteous people as if they were immoral, because almost all were. Now I say almost all because there were rare exceptions, very, very rare exceptions, guys like Abraham and Job and King David and Boaz, men who were both righteous and rich. But that was such a rare occurrence that James doesn't even mention them. James doesn't talk about the righteous rich, because there were like one in a million the vast majority of rich people in the ancient world got that way through unrighteousness. Final thing to understand about the ancient world is that this system of the rich and the poor, it was built on a foundational assumption that to be wealthy was a sign of God's blessing and to be poor was a sign of God's curse. That's what they all assumed. If you are wealthy, that is de facto proof that you are Under God's favor, that you are blessed, that He is proud of you. If you are poor, that is de facto proof that God has cursed you, that God is not pleased with you. Well, that would be true if this was a perfect world. If justice was perfect on earth, then it would always be the righteous who are rich and the wicked who are poor. That's actually why God laid out the Mosaic Law in the book of, books of Exodus to Deuteronomy, all kinds of economics based on the concept of a perfect nation with perfect justice where only the righteous are rich and only the wicked are poor. Problem is, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a broken world. And as a result, wealth is not a proof of God's favor. You cannot look at a person's bank account to determine what God thinks of them. But everyone in the ancient world thought that was the case. The rich assumed, I'm rich because God likes me. Whatever I'm doing over here, God must think it's okay because I'm rich. That was the basic assumption of people living in first century ancient Near East. But it was an assumption that James wants to turn upside down. He wants to flip that assumption around. They assumed that wealth was inherently good, that it was better to be wealthy than to be poor. James wants to completely flip that around. He wants to give us evidence to prove that being wealthy is not better and actually can be worse than being poor. So let's start with the dangers, limitations, liabilities of wealth. James is going to give us four lines of evidence to prove that wealth is not the greatest thing since sliced bread. He wants us to understand wealth is not as great a thing as we think it is. Let's look at what he lays out. The poverty of riches. Look at chapter 1 starting in verse 10 the first liability of wealth. Verse 10, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like of the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now is this rich guy a believer or an unbeliever? We don't know. James doesn't tell us, doesn't really matter. Because his point is true of all wealth, whether it's wealth owned by a believer or wealth owned by an unbeliever, wealth is inherently insecure. Wealth will not last. You cannot count on wealth. Wealth will fade away. Now that's counterintuitive for us. We live in a society where we place a lot of trust in wealth, right? When your bank account is flush, you feel really good about life. When your bank account is running out, you feel really, really insecure, really anxious because we trust in wealth. We think of, of our wealth as like a security blanket that wraps around us and protects us from the bad things in life. James says, no, if you, you can't count on wealth to protect you because wealth is itself inherently insecure. In this life, wealth won't last. Wealth is not something you can count on. Proverbs 23, five, when you set your eyes on it, that is wealth, it is gone For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. As soon as you set your eyes on it, it flies away. I think all of us hopefully know this because of the last four years. We're we're in the midst of a recession that came in the midst of this assumption, these beliefs that we had bought into investments that could never go down. Like real estate, nothing but up and up for real estate. No, no, that's, that's not how wealth works. Wealth is inherently insecure in whatever form you possess it. Wealth is insecure. You cannot count on it in this life. It's insecure in this life and it's worthless in the next life. Worthless in the next life. Psalm forty nine sixteen. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. All of the things that we lust after in this life, that we seek to attain, big 401ks, fancy cars, nice houses, all of that stuff is worthless in the next life. You die and it's like the greatest case of hyperinflation ever. All of your money is worthless up there. It doesn't go with you. It's valueless in eternity. It's the first liability of wealth, first limitation. It does not last. You cannot count on it. It's insecure in this life and worthless in the next. Second liability limitation that James lays out for us about wealth that he wants us to understand is that our wealth does not impress God. Our wealth does not impress God. Now that's important for us to recognize because we live in a world where wealth does impress. Wealth is very impressive to us human beings. If you have a lot of wealth, that gives you a lot of privileges in this life. You get access to restaurants and clubs that the rest of us don't get access to. You get box seats at Kyle Field that we can only dream about. Uh, You get access to people who are the decision makers and the power brokers. Wealth (laughs) brings privilege in this world. It brings status, glory on this earth, but not in the church, not in God's family. Look at chapter two, starting in verse two. Chapter two, verse two. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In God's family, wealth is not impressive. In God's family, wealth does not earn you anything. You don't get a better seat at church because you're wealthy. You don't get closer access to God because you're wealthy. Your wealth does not buy you a better prayer life. It does not earn you more of the Holy Spirit. Your wealth gives you no advantage in God's sight because he's not impressed with wealth. And so let let me say to you, if you are here and you are wealthy, if you are wealthy, you are a person whom the world puts up on the pedestal. The world is constantly telling you that you are special because of your wealth. What God wants you to understand, it is not your wealth that makes you special. It's the fact that God loves you. That's what makes you special. It's what makes all of us special. That God, before time began, chose us in love. That is the only reason that you're special. That's the only reason that you have any status, any place here is because of God's love. Your wealth means nothing here. That's the second limitation of wealth. It does not impress God. Third limitation, actually now we're moving into liabilities, into dangers that wealth brings us. Third thing that James wants us to understand, our wealth, if gained immorally, brings judgment. That was the point of chapter five, verses one through six. God cares about how you gain your wealth. It is not sinful to be wealthy. There's nothing inherently sinful about money and wealth and possessions, but it does matter how you got it. God cares about how you amassed wealth. And if you got rich through immorality, through unrighteousness, then that will bring God's judgment. He will judge that. And James wants us to understand he will judge that uh, if it is through illegal means, through explicitly illegal means, that will bring God's judgment upon you. That was what we saw in chapter 5. Look back there. Chapter 5, verse 4, a specific law that the rich were breaking, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Okay, so they are withholding pay that was due. They're breaking the law of Deuteronomy. And because of that, God's judgment is coming upon them. So if you got rich by breaking the law, God will judge you, but also... If you got rich through means that were legal, but greedy, legal, but selfish, that will also bring God's judgment. It's not enough to just be legal. If you're selfish, if you're greedy, your riches will come back to haunt you. God will judge you for that. Isaiah puts it this way. Isaiah 5, 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. They're not breaking the law here. What they're doing is taking advantage of their neighbor's misfortune. Their neighbor is having a hard year, and so they swoop in and buy their neighbors out. They force them off the land so they can increase their holdings over time, amassing more and more wealth through the misfortune of their neighbors. That will bring God's judgment. Isaiah says, woe to you who get rich on the back of others. Uh, Let me speak specifically to you who own businesses or are corporate decision makers or those of you who want to be one day. According to the Bible, it is not bad to make a profit. It's not a bad thing to make a profit. If your goal is to prosper your family and your employees and your customers and the community, then profit is a good thing. That's that's a good thing in God's sight. But if your goal is, is to maximize your personal profit at the expense of your employees, customers, and communities. That is immoral, and God will judge it. God will judge greed. Famous quote, famous line, a speech in the movie Wall Street. Gordon Gekko gets up and says to a house committee, greed for lack of a better word is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. That is pretty much how America works. We move forward through greed. James wants us to understand greed is not good. Greed does not work in the long run. It works in the short run. You can get wealthier through selfish and greedy means, but it doesn't work in the long run because God hates greed, and he'll punish it. He'll judge it. For believers who are greedy, God will discipline them. For unbelievers who are greedy, they'll spend eternity paying for it. Greed is not good. Greed is not good. It matters how you gain your wealth. If you gained it through immoral means, whether illegal or not, then it will bring God's judgment. That's the first danger of wealth. And the third thing on our list. Second danger of wealth. And the fourth thing James wants us to understand. Is that it doesn't just matter to God how you got wealthy. It also matters to God how you use your wealth. If you hoard your wealth, if you keep it for yourself, to spend it on yourself, that will bring God's judgment. Look with me at at James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 13. James says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And then James gives us an example of this principle. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now we're going to talk about this passage in much greater detail in a few weeks. For right now, all I want you to notice is James is clear. Wealth morally obligates us to give. If God has given you wealth, you are morally obligated to share it with others. That's actually the purpose of wealth, biblically speaking. That's the basic idea of wealth in the Bible. Not something to hoard for myself, not a a possession to store up for me, but a gift to share with others. That's what wealth is. It's a gift given to you so you can give it to others. If you are wealthy, you're wealthy for a purpose, and that purpose is to share. God gives wealth so that we can share it. He gives us something so that we can share with those in need. If we do not share, if instead we hoard our wealth and we spend it on ourselves to live a a life of luxury, that will bring judgment. Look again at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. James says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Pretty hard words there. Pretty hard language. What James is doing is yet again turning our assumptions upside down. We assume that the man or woman living in the lap of luxury, enjoying five course meals and five star hotels, that they are living the good life the awesome life, the best life. James wants us to understand, no, they are not. All they are doing is storing up wrath for themselves. And so he uses this image of a cow fit for slaughter. What he's saying is, you know, when the cows are in the feedlot, they enjoy it. So they get unlimited food there. All the food that they could eat, enjoying it without realizing that the only reason they're being given extra food is to pack on a few extra pounds before they're slaughtered. So it is with the rich who hoard who spend their money only on themselves, they are packing on the pounds for the day of judgment. If we hoard our wealth and spend it only upon ourselves, it makes us liable to judgment, to discipline, to punishment from God. Wealth is meant to be shared, not hoarded. We live in a society that assumes without question, we don't even question it, that it is better to be wealthy than to be poor, and James says, no, it is not. Wealth is incredibly dangerous. Wealth does not last. Wealth does not impress God at all. Wealth, if gained unrighteously, brings you under judgment. And if wealth is not used righteously, it brings you under judgment. Wealth is not the good thing we think it is. Wealth is incredibly dangerous. I like how William Barclay sums it up. The Bible does not condemn wealth as such. But there is no book which more strenuously insists on wealth's responsibility and on the perils which surround those who are abundantly blessed with the world's goods. That's right. The more wealth you have, the more responsible you are to use it well by giving it away. And the more wealth that you have, the more in peril you are. The more in danger you are. Because wealth is an inherently dangerous thing. It's not inherently good to be wealthy. Wealth creates at least as many problems as it solves, probably creates more problems than it solves. So James is is turning our assumptions upside down. It is not inherently good to be wealthy. Now he wants to talk about poverty. It's just like he's going to turn riches upside down, so he is with poverty. We think of poverty as this horrible thing to be avoided at all costs, this plague upon mankind that we should run from. James wants us to understand, no, poverty is not as bad as you think it is. Actually, there are a lot of advantages to be found in poverty. James is gonna reveal to us three riches we can find in poverty. For the first, look at chapter two, verse five. Chapter two, verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What James is saying, first riches, first, richness that you will find in poverty is that poverty can be a catalyst for faith. It can be a catalyst for faith. Now, poverty in and of itself is not inherently good. Being poor does not earn you brownie points with God. What James is saying, he is is tapping into this theme that you will find throughout scripture, that out of all of humanity in need of God's grace, more often than not, God chooses to give it to the poor. It's far more often the poor who are recipients of God's grace than the rich. God planned it that way. 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brethren, God wants to wake up the human race. He wants us to understand that all of the things that we trust in, our strength, our wealth, our success, all of these things that we have are meaningless. He wants to humble us so that we will have no other option than to get on our knees. And so he humbles the human race by choosing the humble, by choosing those who are broken and poor to show us all of our wealth counts for nothing. More often than not, God chooses the poor. And more often than not, the poor choose God. Far more often than rich people trusting in the gospel, poor people trust in the gospel. They're just much more receptive to the gospel because poverty has made them wise. Poverty has opened their eyes to their need for God's help. It has made them uh, willing to receive his assistance. Poverty can draw us to God. It doesn't necessarily. Poverty doesn't save us. But poor people often are far more receptive to the gospel than rich people because they understand how badly they need God. In contrast, look what Jesus says about the rich. Luke 18. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard for the rich to be saved. Why? Because it's so easy to trust in wealth. Wealth can give us a false sense of security. Hey, my life is good. I don't, I don't need anything right now. I got it covered. Wealth can lull us into this sense of security where we don't recognize how desperately we need God. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of, of leading a team over to a, a Central Asian Republic after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, and in our time there in this republic, uh, we got to share the gospel with two types of people. First type were the nationals. They were having a good year. They had just gotten their country back. Everything looked good for them. It looked up and up for them. They saw nothing but more power, more opportunity, more money in their future. Second group were Russians. Russians who were left behind. Russians who didn't have enough money to make it back to the homeland before this country fell away. They were not looking up and up. They were pretty desperate. Things were going downhill for them. Power, influence, money, all of it on the downhill for them. Of those two groups, the nationals who are optimistic and all is rosy, and the Russians who are pessimistic and all is falling apart, which of those two groups was more receptive to the gospel? The Russians, every time. Because you go to these Russians and you say, I have good news for you, God loves you, and he wants to give you hope and security. They say, yes, please, I will take that because I don't have it in this life. Then on the other hand, you go to the nationals and you tell them there's a God who loves you and, and wants to give you hope and security. You know, I don't really need that. Thanks, though. I'm glad that works for you, but everything is blue skies and ever-increasing paychecks for me. I'm good. Often it's people who are poor, people who are desperate, who are more receptive to the gospel. For the rich, they trust in their wealth. For the poor, they're willing to trust in God. I've so often seen that poverty makes fertile soil for the seeds of faith. So the first advantage of poverty, it can draw us into the family of God. It can be the avenue God uses to draw us to his son. But once in the family of God, the second advantage of poverty is that within the family of God, poverty is actually an honor. Poverty is actually an honor within God's family. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. James says, but the brother, so this is a believer of humble circumstances, this is a a poor brother, he's of low social standing in society, he is to glory or to boast, to exalt in his high position, his high status in the church. What James is saying is, if you want to know who has high status in the family of God, look for the ones who have low status in society. That's usually the case. God flips our expectations on their head. The person whom the world puts at the bottom rung of society, the church exalts to the top rung. Why? Well, because they have endured that trial. If they are walking with the Lord in the midst of this trial of poverty, if they are rejoicing in God and drawing near to God as a member of his family while walking through poverty, then they deserve to be on a pedestal because they are persevering in the midst of an incredibly hard trial. And so God says they are honored. They're the ones that you are to lift up. The believer walking faithfully through poverty, far more status in God's church than the believer who's rich. Poverty can be a source of great honor in the family of God. And the third advantage that James lists for us that comes out of poverty, poverty can be an opportunity for eternal reward. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We looked at this verse last week as we were studying what James had to say about enduring trials, enduring hardships. Poverty is just one of many possible hardships that we may go through in life. And what James told us last week is that in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a hardship, God calls us to consider it joy, which means to believe that God is good even when my life is not. To choose to be grateful even when life is hard. If we will do that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of poverty, if you will choose to be grateful, if you will choose to believe that God is good even when life is not, then James says, You are blessed. You are blessed. Why? Because when the trial of this life is over and you stand before your Savior face to face with Jesus Christ, he will reward you with the crown of life. Crown of life, remember we talked about this last week. That's not like a golden crown on a king's head. It's a wreath. A wreath of olive leaves that they would put on, on a person's head who who is either with a person of, of high social status. It's so like the most famous people in, in Greek society would wear this. Um, or, or somebody who won some major accomplishment, like they just won their race at the Greek games, they would get a wreath. And, and this garland that sat on their head, it, it bore all this privilege to them. It brought them all this, this blessing in life. Um, they were lifted up. They were exalted. They had access to all the people, all the places that you want to go. It had economic benefits. If you won the Greek games, you didn't pay taxes for the rest of your life pretty awesome to get that little wreath. And what Jesus is saying is if we endure our trial in this life, whatever it is, including poverty, if you endure poverty in joy, then when you stand before Jesus, he will place a wreath on your head. But unlike their wreath, olive leaves got old, decayed, was ruined in in not much time. Ours, in contrast, will be living That's what he means by a crown of life. It will be a living crown, a crown that never fades away for all eternity. This green, beautiful, lush crown sitting on your head as a sign of glory and honor and privilege for all eternity because you were faithful in this life. James is talking about a reward that is above and beyond just eternal life. You're already in heaven. You're standing before Jesus as he evaluates your life. If you have been faithful in the trial of poverty, you will be rewarded for all of eternity. You will enjoy whatever this is. He doesn't give us much detail, but whatever this honor is, whatever this privilege is, it will be a crown upon your head that will last far longer than all the wealth of this world. So we live in a society that assumes that poverty is to be avoided at all cost. It's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. James says no. It's actually a lot of advantages that come to those in poverty. Poverty can lead you to faith. Makes rich soil for seeds of faith. Within the family of God, if you endure the trial of poverty, you deserve honor. You receive exaltation. And when you stand before Jesus, if you'd endured that trial well, you will receive eternal reward, honor that you will enjoy for all eternity. James totally flips our understanding of wealth and poverty on its head. Radical things that James tells us. It is not better to be rich than to be poor. It's not. We assume it is, but that's a lie. That's a lie. Wealth can be incredibly dangerous and poverty can be an incredible blessing. Radical stuff that James says. And that leads us to close with probably the most important question this morning. How in the world do we apply? this crazy radical social stuff that James is doing in in this book. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we live this out? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that the vast majority of us in this room are not part of either group. We're not part of the poor, not, not by what James means by that. Unless you are a few days away from starving to death, you're not part of the poor as he defined it. And you're probably not part of, of the rich. In his world, rich meant you never have to work again. You are above the rest of mankind. Probably got that way through immoral gain. So probably the vast majority of us are neither rich nor poor. We're part of this new invention of the modern age, the middle class. That's what we are. We're in between. And because of that, because most of us are middle class, we're going to have to apply what James says to the rich and what he says to the poor. Both sides will, in a way, apply to us. So let me take all that we've learned this morning and boil it down to three steps, three specific applications for us to walk away with this week. First step, don't lust for what you don't have. Don't lust for what you don't have. Now, we need to understand, if you, if you are poor, uh, if you are financially strapped right now, it is not bad to try to work your way out of poverty. It's not bad to try to work your way out of debt. It's not bad to get an education so you can get a better job. It's not bad to seek a raise. None of that stuff is bad. It's okay with God that you are seeking to earn more money. What God cares about is that in the midst of your pursuit to earn more, you would choose today to be content with whatever you have. That's the key. While seeking to earn more in the future, I choose to be content with whatever I have today. If I have less in the future, I will be content. If I have more in the future, I will be content. I choose contentment. That's what James wants for us. To choose to be content with whatever it is that we have not to to lust after more. It's, It's interesting, when you look at it biblically, I don't know if you realize this, wealth can be as enslaving for the poor man as it can for the rich man, right? The poor man, he is enslaved to his lust for wealth. The rich man, he is enslaved to his attachment to wealth. Money will make a slave of you if you let it. The way to keep money in its place and not let it rule over you is to choose contentment. And the way that you choose contentment, the way that you become a content person in life is by practicing the spiritual discipline of gratitude. I taught on that earlier this summer. You're welcome to go review that. Spiritual discipline of gratitude, it builds contentment in your life. It's really simple discipline. All that it means is that when you are tempted to feel discontent, you stop and fight back against discontentment by listing off things you're thankful for. Really simple discipline. When you feel covetousness of somebody's bigger house, better clothes, nicer car, whatever it is, you stop and you turn to the Lord and thank him for five things you like about your life, five things that you're grateful for. If you will practice that discipline, every time covetousness springs up in my heart, I list to the Lord five or 10 things that I'm thankful for about my life. That will make you a content person. It will help you to be content and grateful for what you have so that you do not lust after more. I'm going to give you the first item on your list. Most of us are middle class, and so favorite verse in the Bible for the middle class, Proverbs 30, verse eight and nine. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I love this passage because what is it saying? It's saying the best seat in the house is in the middle class. It is a good thing to be in the middle class. Give it up for the middle class because we're neither rich nor poor. That's good. Because there's dangers for those who are wealthy and there's difficulties for those who are poor. We are the most blessed here in the middle. Love it in the middle class. That's the first item on your list. If you're middle class, thank you God for making me middle. Best place to be. Okay, so step number one, don't lust for what you don't have. Choose to be content with whatever God has given you. Second step, don't hoard what you do have. Don't cling to what you do have and spend it only upon yourself. First Timothy 6. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Paul is saying, Fight the urge to trust in your wealth fight the urge to cling to your wealth because it is uncertain. It is inherently uncertain. If your strength and security in life is your wealth, your bank account, your possessions, that is a shaky foundation at best. So hold your wealth loosely. Hold your wealth with open hands, realizing God could take it away at any time. Hold it with open hands and second, as the passage continues, instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Hold your wealth loosely and share it generously. That's why you have it. The reason God gave you wealth, whether it's a little or a lot, is so you could give it away. Give it to those in need. Give it to his church. Give it to his kingdom. That's why you have it, to share it generously. Remember, though, good news of this verse right there at the end. As you share it, you are doing what? Storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation in the future. You're not really making a sacrifice. God's not going to be your debtor. He's going to reward you in eternity so richly that what you gave up in this life will be nothing by comparison. When you share, you're just investing in the next life. So share generously. Third step applies for all of us, whether we're rich or poor. At all times, fix your eyes on the one who became poor for us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Second Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I love the word play here. Jesus Christ, infinitely rich, son of God, owns the whole universe. There will never be anyone close to as rich as Jesus. And then what did he do? He gave it all up to become a poor carpenter in a backwater town and die a poor man's humiliating and excruciating death on the crucifix. Why? For us. Out of love for us so that through his poverty, we could become rich. Rich with what really matters. Not green paper, not cars, not mansions that will pass away and turn into dust, but rich with eternal life with forgiveness, with a relationship with God now and forever, that is true riches. Jesus became the poorest human ever so that we could be the richest humans ever. I love this because it corrects our false perspective. Here we're talking so much about money, so much about whether you have wealth or not. God wants us to understand, if you'll step back for a moment, you'll recognize we who've trusted in Jesus are the richest people on the planet. If you have received eternal life, By believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you are tied with me for richest person on the planet right now. Why? Because money is worthless. Money doesn't matter. What matters is that you have a relationship with God forever that you can never lose, that you will be enjoying long after the McMansions of this planet are dust. We are rich because Christ became poor. We are rich through his poverty. So this week, you go out in the world and you are tempted at every turn to cling to the things of earth, to lust for the wealth and possessions, the status, the fame that this world has to offer you, my challenge to you would be to just step back for a moment and fix your eyes on the one who became poor so that we could become rich. Fix your eyes on him. It will help you to not get so caught up in the nonstop, no-hold-barred lust for wealth that is endemic to our world. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that through Christ we are rich. We thank you that your Son willingly became poor so that we could receive the gift of eternal life. And Father, we pray for any person in this room who has not yet received that gift who has not yet received eternal life, please, Lord, let this be the morning of their salvation. Open their eyes to this free gift of eternal life that you offer. Lord, help them to see that whatever it is that they're clinging to, whatever it is that they're trusting in, whether it's their wealth or their good works or their status, whatever it is, please, Lord, help them to see the worthlessness of all of that. Help them to see the beauty and the gift that Christ is for them. I pray that they would believe that your son really did die for their sins and rise from the dead so that they could have eternal life. And Father, for those of us who have received that gift, I pray, Father, that you would break us of this false assumption that we have, that it's better to be rich than it is to be poor. Help us to say no to that, Lord. Help us first and foremost to recognize that all of us are already infinitely rich because of Jesus Christ. And second, help us to be content with whatever money we have. Help us to recognize how dangerous money can be, how deceptive wealth can be. Help us to walk with you in gratitude and contentment every day of of our entire lives. I pray that through that, Lord, through being people who practice contentment and gratitude, who don't lust after wealth, who are content to walk in poverty, I pray, Father, that we would be a light to this world, that as they see how we share graciously with others, as they see how we hold onto our wealth loosely, that they would be drawn to Jesus Christ, the one and only source of security in this world. I pray, Father, use us, use our wealth to honor you, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.